0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Avery. I'm your host. Today, a hard look at what German women were doing during World War II. We know from witness testimony and from historians' work that though there were a handful of women among the most notoriously violent Nazi camp guards and bureaucrats, for the most part, German women were absent from positions of power in the Nazi regime. That might lead us to conclude that they were not active participants in the genocide that took place. In a new book called Hitler's Furies, historian Wendy Lauer tells us such a conclusion is wrong. In fact, she argues, many young women sought opportunity during the war and headed east to the territories where the vast majority of the killing took place. They took on an essential role as teachers, nurses, secretaries, and as wives and lovers. In all of those capacities, they were not only aiding in the final solution, but they were also witnesses to it. And in some cases, they committed acts of violence themselves. It's a very hard book to read, but it's also a very important one. And we're very pleased today to have Wendy Lauer with us in the studio to talk about it. Wendy Lauer, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. When we talk about the perpetrators of the Holocaust, we talk about the Germans. But by and large, I think the picture people have in their heads when they say that is uh, German men. When we do think of women, it's usually just a few very notorious characters. Who were those women?
1: We usually think of the camp guards, right? People like Irma Greza, so-called, you know. Beasts of Belsen or Ilse Koch, the bitch of, from Buchenwald. These are the, the labels that have been placed on them that are also very revealing. Um, Hermina Braunsteiner, the mayor, so-called mayor of Majdanek. Yeah, these are, these are some of the images that were that have been predominant, you know, in popular imagery and even to an extent, you know, have guided the research, kind of the focus of the research on
0: the guards. In Germany during the war and after, there was a very different stereotype of German women and their role in the war. What was that stereotype?
1: That was the one of the victim, and, you know, of course, in a lot of these stereotypes, there's a grain of truth, um, but they will they get blown out of proportion, and they will overshadow other realities and complexities of the history. So, in fact, women were victims at the end of the war of, of you know, the mass violence and rapes of the Red Army in Berlin in particular. And the women who were subjected to that, I mean, the numbers vary from 80,000 to 2 million, but it was significant. And, and so that story is important. But it kind of dominated, you know, the martyr, the martyrdom of the German woman.
0: And also in the book, you make the point that they were also – there was this idea that they were uh, sort of the stalwart women at home preserving the the hearth in the home while their men were off at war.
1: Right, right. And that's something that comes up in a lot of literature in war in general, that they're back in the home front and that the war is being fought on their behalf. Um, the Nazis, you know, propagated that quite a bit, kind of project women with the family – at home doing her duty, having more children to expand the German race so that they could you know, fill the ranks of the military to fight more wars and expand the empire and so forth. So yeah, it's the woman at home, not a kind of Rosie
0: the Riveter kind of involved in the total war. So if we have these two uh, poles, the, the victim, the woman at home, and then the rare but sadistic uh, female prison guard. There's something missing in between, and that is the gap that your book seeks to fill. Tell us who the who that population is in the middle that you are uh, examining.
1: Right. I mean, I there's this gray area in between, and obviously that's the majority of the population. So there's been research on women in Nazi Germany that deals with some of these particular cases and these particular kind of professions and women in the Nazi party or women in the party leadership. Um. What I do in my book is expand that whole research um, and even kind of open up whole, all new areas of inquiry because I move that to the Eastern Territories. I move the question of what were German, ordinary German women doing um, during the war and you know, vis-a-vis the Holocaust and not back on the home front, but actually
0: in the killing fields of the Holocaust. And so what were they doing? Who, who were they and uh, what roles did they fill well, um, initially
1: I just found a, a list of teachers, actually, in the Zhatomar archive in Ukraine, teachers and welfare workers who were, had come in under the auspices of the Nazi party. <clears throat> and I thought, oh, you know, what are they doing here? I thought, as, as you mentioned before, I thought, oh, they, they're supposed to be on the home front. Um, and suddenly they're there and they're, you know, young and single and involved in all, organizing all kinds of local activities and these kind of colonial utopian projects that they were, um, implementing at the time. Um, and so suddenly they were there, and that I then I, I kind of backed off from those files and thought, all right, if I have found this one document, then there may be more. And the picture then started to develop, and, and you know the files started to grow, and then I started to realize that in fact there were significant numbers of women in various roles, and as many as a half a million nurses, teachers, welfare workers, and then these family members. They those those cases are really I think very interesting because. They're not there in any kind of official capacity. They're, they're entering into these communities because of spouses and lovers, uh, visiting family members. Um, and there's some fluidity there, in term, a lot more coming and going from the Reich, from the Germany proper, out to Belarus, out to Ukraine. So there's more movement back and forth that included women more than we uh, had, had imagined before, or they admitted to after the war.
0: In fact, you offer biographies of about a dozen women in the book, specific women, uh, and they vary in terms of their social backgrounds, their level of education, and their motivations for going eastward. I wonder if maybe you could tell us a little bit about one of the women who went with what a person could arguably call uh, admirable aims somebody who was a nurse, for instance, or a teacher
1: yeah, I have a couple of cases. I you know the cases of the killers are the most shocking and they they grab a lot of atten- people's attention and they're really important in terms of showing the extent, you know where this ultimately led these extreme cases. But the majority of of ordinary women who went east, they did not you know kill with their bare hands. They went into these settings and they saw what was happening. I mean, it was it was unavoidable at various points. Either they were on the train platforms heading east, like Annette Schuching-Holmeyer is probably the the case that is the biggest contrast to the extreme killers, if you were going to put them on, ext- to, you know, in extremes. Um, she was a nurse working in a soldier's home, one of these retreats um, in Ukraine, in Novgorod-Volensk. And she wanted to do her patriotic duty it was she was you know all single young women seventeen to twenty five years old um had a kind of compulsory military service. They could decide in what way they would fulfill that service, could be in a factory at home or could be s- somewhere you know in the east and so they uh, chose to go east in her case, she chose to go east, volunteered. And um, she was educated, unlike the others in the book. She had a uh, actually had a law degree. Most of the women in the book only had grammar school educations, and saw the East as kind of places of opportunity um, and for social mobility. Aneta went out of her love of her country and wanted to serve the war effort. So even before she left, um, a journalist friend of hers in Berlin said, "You know, Aneta, why why are you going there?" <laughs> um, they're killing Jews there. But she had committed to go. And, and and in fact, you know, she went and then in the next phase, kind of as she's moving eastward, coming closer to the crimes, the train stops in Brest in Belarus. And they're in the compartment, she and her friend, another woman. And in walks um, two into the compartment two German men in, in uniform. She wasn't sure when I spoke to her in March of 2010, she didn't, she couldn't distinguish at that point if they were SS or, or regular army. But anyway, they sat down and they just started to talk to her about what massacres they had participated in and, and describe that scene. It was horrendous, and she couldn't, you know, she suddenly realized. What her journalist friend had told her in Berlin, it was echoing in her ears. She realized that she was heading into some, some dangerous territory, not kind of dangerous in terms of the warfare,
0: but what was going on behind the lines. Well, how did she fare there or how did people like her who went with good intentions, thinking that they were doing a patriotic duty or a social welfare duty, how did they uh, deal with this, uh, with what they saw or what they knew about?
1: Well, um, many of them were very distressed. Um, in the case of Annetta, she wrote back home. Um, and so we have documentation, letters from the war, in which she's expressing this moral, uh, um, you know, her shock and her apprehensions. Um, but you know what? She, she not only stayed, but she continued on. She went to Krasnodar from there. I thought when she, I read those letters, um, well, why didn't you just go right back home to Germany? And, and she, she said, well, I had to, you know, my next post was was farther into Russia and so there was a side of her that wanted to continue to to fight the fight for Germany and her fatherland and you know ultimately she could she could rem- distance herself as horrible as these things were she did find ways to kind of distance herself from those crimes and but others didn't do that others actually you know participated in in the crimes they took the property of the Jews they engaged in all the plundering activities they helped some of the primary perpetrators, the men, consoled them in ways, you know, provided them support in all different forms, or even went to the mass shootings out of curiosity. And, you know, the closer they got to these these massacres, then obviously the greater the opportunity um, they were faced with or the choice they were
0: faced with as to whether or not they would directly participate because they could. In the book, you actually describe some episodes where some of these women went to the sites of exterminations or actions against the Jews and weren't even just passive bystanders. I mean, they took active part.
1: Um, Yes, uh, there are cases, um, and we have testimony from survivors primarily, um, in which they describe German women at the scenes. You know, when the Jews were marched out of these towns, it was a kind of spectacle. And so... There are cases of women at these murder scenes we see, and they're providing refreshments, kind of serving in a kind of typical support role, um, but also going through, like, I mean, one woman who's described as a cattle herder, a secretary, um, goading Jews, taunting them when they're gathered in, in these collection points. Um, So there are different points in this kind of the killing process, as it were, the different stages that led to the ultimately the killing, ghettoization, where we see women, ordinary German women, um, directly involved and kind of beneficiaries of it as well in terms of the property and the distribution of Jewish personal, personal property.
0: You make the distinction between teachers and nurses versus secretaries or wives and partners, women who are in more supportive roles we'd expect them maybe to be passive those supportive role those women in supportive roles but in fact they were among the most uh active and aggressive is that right yeah
1: it's interesting how this dynamic i mean i could we could refer to them as kind of partners in crime and use that cliche but there's something more to that more there is a dynamic that develops between men and women that you know aggravates the violence that actually they they come up with Okay, if it's a boss and a secretary, they're working together on fine-tuning and honing kind of organizational methods, which are key to why genocide happens. It's systematic and it's organized and, it, and it's and it got this bureaucratic element to it. So women are part of that process of organizing and implementing it. Sabina Dick is featured in the book, the secretary to the Gestapo chief in Minsk, who was convicted for killing 11,000 Jews. That's That's her boss. And there, you know, he's coming out of his office, he's saying, Sabina, quick, write this up. And she's, you know, in her testimony, she's very clear about how they handled the implementation of mass shootings against Jews, the documentation, what was going on in the office, versus when they would actually, the um, policemen would be deployed for another kind of action, so against partisans, when they got engaged in a kind of warfare against these, these partisans. And um, and so they, you know, together um, came up with these these kinds of systems and the support personnel there's a case too of the um which i think they're so underestimated and especially in the killing fields in eastern europe where they could be you know typing up documentation about who's going to be a jewish who's going to be a laborer who's going to get the gold card for you know the the labor certificate which is a life-saving certificate and being engaged in that determination and then you know within hours um, being in that same field office and hearing the mass shooting—I mean, that is so different from when you think of these secretaries in Berlin and back in the Reich. They know immediately what the what the uh, results are of their administrative actions. Secretaries also in the police office in Warsaw, another incredible case, when poles were being targeted in reprisal actions, and so you know, if one German official had been killed, then the reprisal might be 100 poles would be would be killed. In this case, this, the boss, you know, they've got all these files of polls who are suspected, you know, who are political figures or so forth, whatever. The gots, Gestapo's got these files, and they're all piled up in the hallway of the office. Uh, says to the secretaries, look, we've got to kill 100 polls and um, the boss, the male boss as well. These are the few that I really, we definitely want to kill these guys because they're they're bad news. They're, you know, ahead of the resistance. And you women, you know, you sort through the other, f- other files and figure out who are going to be the rest. And here are these women just, you know, pulling, almost randomly pulling these files out. Like, okay, these will be the rest. That's, you know, life and death, that's power. And um, so I think we can't, in that administrative example, um, cannot underestimate the the power these German women had, uh, life and death, over non-Germans, even in what seemed to be kind of minor roles with massive, you know, massive proportions in terms of the uh, impact. Um. And then with the spouses, yeah, I mean, that also gets into the realm of what's going on in domestic settings and more intimate kind of overlap of the Holocaust with people's personal relationships and how these violent crimes often are kind of the backdrop for office romances. And they kind of intersect in ways, you know, going out for a picnic or a ride in the woods or a sleigh ride through the snow, and suddenly, you know, coming across what was a mass shooting site, or coming across Jewish laborers, and so it's these kinds of um, dynamics between men and women, and these different settings. I think we just understand them in a different way when you when you start to look at the look at them in the Eastern, you know, the so called killing
0: fields. In some ways though a reader might wonder is this really so surprising i mean you have this whole country whose machinery was dedicated to killing an entire population or more than one population really why wouldn't women be implicated in that uh, apparatus
1: i think it's surprising because when we talk about even in the old language of the women's sphere right and we make that distinction it that separation be it you know the sphere of the household or the home front they become innocent of the crimes. They're kind of pushed to the margins, not only as agents, but kind of in a, in a real physical kind of spatial sense. And this is not the reality of how genocide happens, especially one mag- of this magnitude, where it's overlapping with all kinds of everyday activities and, you know, consumer culture and all these modern Uh,
0: everyday kind of operations that women were an integral part of. Is there anything different about how men and women uh, operate in such a context?
1: Yeah, it's so interesting how gender and kind of morality get, you know, entangled. So someone like Altfata, the secretary, Johanna Hanna, in novgorod Volinsk, the testimony about her is really um, in some ways bizarre. They She's openly violent. She's the one who was a secretary um, and went into a ghetto liquidation in the fall of 42 and was there's multiple testimony about her. So people see her publicly going into the ghetto and then going out to the killing site outside the town where these mass shootings took place. Seven, 9,000 Jews killed in these mass shootings in a couple of weeks in September 42. And that drew a crowd of onlookers. And she was not only an onlooker there, but she was seen moving from the refreshment table over the mass shooting site on horseback, wearing, you know pants. Um, she's described as a she- man. So as these women become more publicly violent, they start to look like men in the witness in the minds of the witnesses. Um, and then some people said, "Oh, well, she was the lover of the of, of her boss." so issues of kind of homosexuality heterosexuality femininity um and this the fact that with female killers even going back to the camp guard history it's always as claudia kunz um i think correctly put it she said that we that our fascination with Nazism or our disbelief the puzzles of it because of the extremes the violence um they when we speak of evil women it becomes kind of eroticized like that somehow we can't uncouple or decouple
0: kind of female evil with something that is sexualized do you have any thoughts that you can offer as to why why can't we uh see them separate why does evil have to become sort of this erotic thing in women
1: well i think that, that relates to all these other stereotypes first of all we think that violence in men is normal it's been normalized. Men go to war. They commit these, these violent acts. They're aggressive. And often even, you know, they're socialized. It's acceptable to be that way. Women are not supposed to be that way. They're, they're supposed to be socialized as nurturers. And, and it's interesting because none of the women in my book I would call kind of natural-born killers. This is all learned. And after the war, then they slip back into society in their traditional female roles. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe, as I state in my book, you know, there's a hope that's underlying that. Wanting to believe that that women, if if women don't do this, if if women, if we believe that women are peaceful and they're not going to become kind of mass murderers and be that violent, isn't that reassuring? Isn't that reassuring that half, more than half, the human race is not going to devour the other? <laughs> if we expect men to be violent, I mean, there's something there in terms of I think kind of psychologically um, that's wrapped up in these prejudices, but it's also I think a kind of hope in a way that. Here's, um, you know, behavior that is not going to be um, so destructive.
0: You've been a scholar of the Holocaust for nearly two decades. As a historian of this particular period, what surprised you most about your research on this topic?
1: I think, again, not so much that establishing that women could be violent too. Um, but actually that genocide is, as, a, as a phenomenon is very much about women. I mean, that, that's, it's not about, okay, the, just a pure ability for women to be violent, but just all the different roles that women filled in order to make the Holocaust, in making the Holocaust possible. We always say, how could this happen? How could this happen? And I feel like that question, the answer of how... To think of now the machinery of destruction and the way that Raleigh Hilberg so masterfully presented his three-volume study and a lot of the studies on on perpetrators that have created these male kind of types, um, that suddenly I started to to see these female types um, outside the camp system um, in a way they came, they just came into view, and and that to me was was really surprising. Um, The agency of women, the politicization of women, this kind of dark side of female activism that became wrapped up in the genocide really was um, shocking, startling. Of course, the cases of violence like Erna Petrie, when I'm in the archives and I read that, my heart stops. I mean, it's disturbing but when I stepped back from the material and I finished my book and I really was processing it in a kind of in a larger scale of of what this all meant, I think it's this kind of placement of women in the genocidal system in a in a much more pervasive way and far-reaching way. That to me has been um, a discovery. Wendy Lower,
0: thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Wendy Lauer is a professor of history at Claremont McKenna College, and she's a consultant for the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. Her new book is called Hitler's Furies, German Women in the Nazi Killing Fields. It's just out now from Hohen Mifflin Harcourt. Now, just a note for you listeners, I don't know if you are aware, you can subscribe to our podcast. You can do so on iTunes or Stitcher. We also are now available for listening on Swell. So check it out. Give it all a try. Enjoy. Share it with your friends. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Avery. We thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again next time.